Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Jude, verses 24 and 25. So now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So this morning we will be concluding our time in this short letter from the Lord's half-brother Jude. By now we have seen, if you've been with us or you've been watching, the great value and importance that is connected with this book. It's a neglected book today, but it shouldn't be, for it's a book that reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ. It's also kind of a call to arms book, preparing us to be aware of some of the false teaching and to continue to engage in the battle for truth in our culture. In an age of spin and great tolerance, the church needs straight talk, and so Jude gives that to us here. Um... I've been very thankful. I've, I've, always, I've read Jude multiple times. I remember early on uh, as a young believer, I didn't know what to do. Somebody said, I came to Christ on a Sunday night, and, they, and I said, so what am I supposed to do now? And they said, read your Bible. And so I read my Bible, but didn't know, have any idea what to do. And as a teenage boy, um, I thought, well, let me just tackle the book of Revelation. That'll be easy. And so I, I read that a lot uh, early on. And uh, but this is an important book, and so next, being next to Revelation, um, I would read Jude from time to time uh, in my early days of faith. But it's been great to study it, for me to really look at um, what was going on in the context then, and also looking at where we are today and, and how relevant it is to us um, in our lives. So we will see today, be reminded, um, that as he began this short letter, he ends it the same way. That God preserves his people. He keeps his people and he preserves us to ultimately present us to be with him in eternity in heaven. So there are aspects of our faith today that we have talked about um, where there is a pressure to lessen some of the aspects of the gospel. And that will continue to be the case. And Jude has been dealing with that. He was dealing with it in his generation Therefore, you and I must remember the lessons that are connected to this book, that we would remain vigilant, that, that as there's pressure put on us to see things a bit differently, that we want to continue to be biblical and yet loving at the same time, because you can be both of those things. And sometimes it's, it's hard in certain situations, sometimes even um, family stuff, family discussions sometimes are the hardest to have some of these things, these faith discussions about and, and to continue to remain loving and to be patient. And, and so uh, there's been great counsel in this. So if you, somewhere around your chair, you have a piece of paper that I put in there this morning. So Jude concludes this letter with what's called a doxology. And on, the, on one side of that, you can see there's um, a number of, there's more doxologies in the Bible, but I just wanted to put some of those in there so that you could see what this is. So, so this close of Jude is a doxology. Doxa means glory in Greek. Um, logos, word. So a doxology is a saying of praise. It's a word of praise that most all the time when you look at them in the New Testament, if you've got a, if you, if you use Bible Gateway, I don't know what you use, and you type in the word amen, you will find a number of those things in the New Testament, and those are doxologies. Those are words of praise, words of great thankfulness. And in the context, always with them, it's a saying of praise to God, exalting Him for the salvation that He has given to us in a relationship with Christ. So as you look at that page, there's one there in First Chronicles. I won't read that, but look at the next one there in Romans 1, 11. 33. This is a, a famous one and a great one. Paul right there says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given Him a gift 
that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The book of Psalms is actually put together in five books, put together in what we call this. And in different sections along the way, there are doxologies. At the very end of the book of Psalms, the very last one, is a doxology, Psalm 150. Would you read that with me? I just want to point these out because they're important things. And we're going to talk about it, a little bit more about this in just a second. So he says, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So a doxology is a response to God that wells up in us a word of praise, thanking God for His wonderful work of salvation. As a matter of fact, for all of us, our life, who are in the faith, should be a doxology. We should live a doxology. We should have moments in our life that we stop down a lot thinking about How amazing this salvation is that has come to us. That God has rescued sinners like us. People who still wrestle with sin and don't get this perfect. And we recognize sometimes in the depravity that's even in our own lives. Of how awesome it is and how incredible God's work is. That He has saved us and He has rescued us. And so this is a saying of praise. This is an expression of our thankfulness to God that He has granted unto us salvation. So we will close looking at this doxology in Jude, but you've got a number of others there that you can look at, a good number of them from the Apostle Paul. So we should be living a doxology of great thankfulness to God in His work on our behalf. So Jude knew what this was like. The theme, just to remind us, the theme of this book was was to help give believers a tool in the first century and then the church moving forward to know how to recognize false teaching when it's present. So he gave them multiple examples of the Old Testament, of things that were present among the people of God, things that were connected to the angels, things that were connected to Gentiles. And then a little bit later, he gave three more examples of what was connected to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And all of this was to prepare us to be able to recognize why there is a danger to stray away from aspects of the gospel and the true gospel to begin believing and affirming other things. And Jude's heart was a shepherding heart, was to help the church that he was writing to to know how to distinguish these things and how to discern these things, they were already knowing, as many of us have come to know. People within their own family, people within their family of believers, who had given at one point in time great affirmation and great exaltation to Christ for saving. They had made maybe a what we would call a profession of faith, and yet they had now walked away from the church and walked away from the faith and believed something completely different maybe than what they had taught and what they had once affirmed. And Jude warns us that this kind of thing happens where people creep into the church and begin to affirm and teach a number of different things. And so he calls us to be aware and to be prepared for all of this. So Living in a day and time, as Jude's believers were, that he was writing to, we are hearing more and more things in our day that are directed toward people like us who affirm the Scripture and want to walk with God according to what the Scripture says. As this increase in pressure and as this this call comes upon our life from the culture to see things differently from what the Bible says, and as we watch people that we love turn away from the gospel, what are we to do? What do we need to be reminded of? 
Because I don't know about you, sometimes just listening to the news, just getting a glimpse of the news is depressing. And it's overwhelming. Because many of us are praying. Many of us are fasting. Many of us are faithfully living before others. And it seems as if, is anybody listening? Is anybody seeing good examples? And you wonder, what in the world is going on? And so Jude closes this letter reminding believers to not get deeply discouraged by the things that they are hearing and the things that they are seeing. That there is one who is greater than the lies. There is one who can sustain us and keep us when it gets tough. When it seems as if the lies permeate everything, there is one who can keep us and sustain us and bring us all the way there. There is one who is stronger. So those believers needed assurance and confidence that Jude was writing to. And so he reminds them that there is one stronger. There is one who lived inside of them. There is one who lives inside of us who can carry us and sustain us regardless of what happens outside of us and and what we are living in in the midst of even in our day today. So the the ending here is a reminder to us that the hope does not lie with us. It still lies with God. That's where a hope lies, always. So it must rest there solely in Christ, completely with His great work of power. Others may fall away. Others may begin to affirm other things. But the Lord never changes. And He will not let go of those who are His ever. He will not ever do that. So he is able to keep us. For ultimately, if this was in our control, we could not keep ourselves. And the Lord is able by the blood of Christ and the work and the promise of who he is connected to his glorious nature. One day present us. This is an amazing thing to present us to God in his literal presence. Blameless. It's astounding. That's why Paul has many doxologies. That's why Jude has a doxology here because he cannot fathom. Because again, if we take an honest estimation of our own heart, our own heart can be dark. I know that mine can at times. And it's an amazing thing that one day he he keeps us here in his grace. He will sustain us in his grace. And one day he will present us in his literal Glorious light, presence, holiness, blameless. And so we're going to talk about these amazing things today. So we will once again today talk about the eternal security that is ours because of the work of God. And it's not connected to our ability or any kind of thing that is connected to us. And um, because we are totally inadequate for the task to keep ourselves in the faith. Because our struggle is daily. Christ has already done the great work. He lived in such a way that he did not sin. And because of the great work of his life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, which we will celebrate and exalt him for next weekend uh, in a special way, um, because of what he has done, our confidence rests in his work not in our ability to do anything other than to surrender to the greatness of His majesty in regard to what He has done for us on the cross. He sustains us. You see, if our eternal security is totally up to our ability and our power, then we know immediately that we are totally inadequate for the task. Because of that, we are well aware that He is able to save us. Preserve us, sanctify us, keep us, bring eternal security to us. For only Jesus saves and only Jesus secures. And that is why he must be our life. He must be everything to us. And I'm convinced of this even more at my young age. Look at me, I'm young, right? I'm convinced more and more the older I get and the closer I get to being with Him, that the eternal security of our faith and the great doctrines of our faith are tied to 
that security that is ours that we call the security of the believer. Some call it the perseverance of the saints. You can call it a number of names, but it just simply means this, that if God is going to, through the blood of Jesus and through the power of the resurrection, he is going to save us, listen, then he is going to keep us. That that's not our task now to keep ourselves. And so Jude wants to remind these believers that this is God's great work in the midst of a troubling time in which they were living in. If our salvation in Christ is not permanent, then it diminishes the work of salvation. To just say this, this is an iffy proposition, an iffy theory that God can keep us. That once we are His, that He now doesn't really have the power to be able to keep us. And I want to um, just one more time today try to remind us today of the eternal security of our salvation and what that does and what he has done for us. Are y'all ready? Okay, I'm done with the introduction. Let's get into the text. First of all, this morning, we are to live lives praising and worshiping the Savior. Look with me in verse 2 of Jude. Excuse me, it's verse 1. Second part of verse 1. So he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept, same phrase here, kept for Jesus Christ. Now go back to 24. So he says there, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now verse 24, now to Him who is able to to keep you, same idea, kept, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So I want to just just briefly for a moment, before we get into the heart of of our study this morning, remind you and I that that if salvation has come to us, we now live a doxology. A life exalting God, recognizing that what He has done in our salvation is raise spiritually dead people who could not raise themselves. Because they were dead, they couldn't even be good. So God had to, God had to do a work to bring life to something that was dead. And so now... We live a doxology, a life that praises Him and exalts Him in obedience, giving great thanks to the great, wonderful salvation that has come to us. So doxa, a glory. Logos, a word, a word of praise, a life of praise that just says this, my life is on a mission to live for your glory and to express your glory, to be thankful to that, to sing about it, to live it, to tell about it, to pray in it, and to be empowered by the work of God. And so now, because of this great work, I exalt you because you have granted and you have given to me salvation. So he says, now to him. And then in verse 25, look at verse 25 for a moment. The first part of 25, to the only God. We are to live in a way that there is a direction that our life is headed to in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, our hands, whatever we do, our emotions, that our mind and our emotions and our heart and our obedience and our love for God's word, everything is going to Jesus to exalt him, to lift him up. Everything. This word to here of now to him in first part of 24, first part of 25, now to the only God. When you and I are enthralled in the worship of the Savior, we will have no time listening to false things. We will be encompassed and and enthralled with the wonder and the glory of the work of God in Christ done on our behalf. I love Psalm chapter 16. Such a great psalm. Listen to what it says. Psalm 16, verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
in the night, my heart also instructs me. And then he says this, I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I will not or I shall not be shaken. We are to live in a way that honors him in everything, that every part of our life is lived in the direction of Jesus to exalt him. So let me remind us of a few verses and we'll get to point two. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 4, 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, whether you are eating or you are drinking or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. So as Jude closes this, he is reminding these believers, here's why we live a life in the direction of Jesus to exalt Him. And he's now going to share why there's a basis of our lives to exalt to, to live a doxology of great thanks to the work of Christ in salvation that has come to His people. And these things are pretty amazing. And the first one I want to talk about is kind of twofold. I've called it the permanent work of God to transform sinners. And there are two unique things that He does. One, He does a great work here of putting us in grace and keeping us in Christ and in grace here, that we're covered by the blood here, and then eventually he's going to do an even, I don't know if a greater work, but he's going to do this other great work, both of them are amazing, where we are eventually going to be able to, sinners, stand in the literal presence of the Shekinah glory of God, and we will stand there, and we will not disintegrate being in his presence. Because we will be transformed into the very image and likeness of Jesus. So look at 24. Let's read all of it. Now to him, this direction, to him. And I was going to say, here, here's why we exalt him. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? And then here's the second one. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Now, one of the key ministries of Jesus right now that is happening for his people on our behalf as we walk by faith is that he is our great high priest. He is our great intercessor. Spurgeon, writing about this idea, he said that this side of heaven, the road to heaven, is safe because of the security that the believer has in Christ. And then he said, but yet, this road here can also be a bit dangerous along the way. There's great heartache. Sometimes there's wrestling with big questions and struggles. Just a week week ago tomorrow, something devastating again happened in our country. And we we continue to see these things, and there's a heaviness on, on the road to heaven where we need some kind of reminder that there's one that sustains us. There's one that's in the midst of the chaos and the heartache who is good and who's present with us. Listen to what Asaph wrote. Psalm 73 verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then Asaph in just a... In, in a moment of honesty, he just says this, but I want to tell you something about my life. And he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, almost, keyword. My steps had nearly slipped. The fact is that all of us can attest to this reality that a lot of times we think we're strong, we think that we are sure-footed, and what do we find out in a moment? Sometimes we're not. And we were reminded that We cannot sustain ourselves, but there is one who can. And that's what Jude is trying to get here. 
church that I'm writing to, Jude. I'm telling you these things so you will be aware of these, but I want to remind you that in this life, on your way to Him, to be in His presence and stand in His presence, I want to remind you that there's one on this journey, on this road, who's able to sustain you, to keep you from stumbling so bad here that you get off the road and you're no longer a believer and a follower anymore. He wants them to know that God is able. Grab your page again, okay, just for a moment. On the back side of that, I have multiple verses in the New Testament that talk about God is able. And there's all kinds of subject matter. I don't have time today to go through all of this, but I encourage you to look at this. Look at the things that God is able to do for us on our behalf. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians to your left for a moment, and we're going to read a few verses in 1 Corinthians. about the ability of God to take care of us. 1 Corinthians, and if you would, go to chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 4. Listen to these. Listen to the ability of God and the power of God on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Listen to this all-encompassing phrase. That in every way, in every way, you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, verse 7 so that you are not lacking any gift. So you've got it in all speech. You've got it in all knowledge. You're not lacking in any kind of gift. And listen to what he says there in the next part of verse 7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 8. Who will, not might, we hope, who will sustain you to the, how far? To the end. How's he going to sustain us to the end? He says guiltless. ESV says guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is able. Will you say that with me? God is able. This word able in the Greek is dunamai. It's where we get our English word dynamic, dynamite, or dynamo. It stresses the power to accomplish something, not just in the moment, but the power to accomplish something and bring it all the way to the end. So in our salvation... Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, Jude is writing here. Paul writes it in other places. Not only does God have the power to save us today, He has the power to save us until the very end. And that's an astounding thought, that that our security is wrapped up in that. It begins with God's great, powerful work. We are sustained with God's great, powerful work. We will be carried literally to the very end into His presence by the power of God. To keep. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's don't do that. i got some other things I want to say first. He is able. Ultimately, God alone can keep us from stumbling, from losing our eternal standing with Him. God will keep. God will guard the true believer from falling to any long, the true believer from falling into any long-term apostasy that remains. This word stumbling described a sure-footed horse that doesn't stumble when it walks in different places. Even in rocky ground, it's strong and it sustains the rider 
because the horse is sure-footed, not because the rider is. And we are being carried with one who is the most sure-footed one in the history of the world. It is the eternal God who has saved us and is keeping us. So God will walk us safely with him. But I have a question this morning. And the question is this, why is there so much among Christians these kinds of things that I want to mention? Fear, doubt, anxiety, worry, dread, anger, questioning of his goodness, the uncertainty of our salvation. It's because of this, here's the answer, that far too many do not realize that we have the ultimate guarantee of our eternal security. My hope, your hope, rests in the reality that God is able, as Jude writes here, to keep us from stumbling. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, He is able to keep you to the end and to keep us to the end, even to the place where in the very end we will be guiltless, guiltless before God. How is that even the case, but it is the case because God is able. So listen, church, if my security is in my hands, my eternal security is in my hands, then I will never be able to keep it. You see, none of us are good enough. None of us are holy enough. None of us are nice enough. We're not worthy enough. We're not strong enough to keep ourselves in the hand of God. That is why we need His goodness, His holiness, His kindness, His worthiness, His strength to keep us in His hand. We need Him. If I could lose my salvation, then I most certainly would if it was dependent upon me. And so would each of you. So praise Him today that it is not dependent upon us. If it was dependent upon our goodness, before or over God's holiness and God's work, then I have some other questions. How would we ever know that we've done enough to keep ourselves qualified for salvation? How could we ever know where the line of being good enough truly is and which side of that line we actually are on? Have we done enough or have we not done enough? How will we ever know what's there? And I can just tell you we would always be on the wrong side of the line if it was up to us. So the problem with any idea connected to our eternal security being in our hands, our whole responsibility can only lead to a life, listen, to an uncertainty and doubt. After all, if you're like me, I still sin. Can anybody relate? There weren't enough heads nodding in the room. Can you relate to sinning? I can. I hope for an hour this afternoon things will go well for me. So this is dependent upon us. I still sin, and the longer I live, guess what? You could write more things down on my list of things that I do wrong. And so the longer we live, the longer our list is of the things that we have done. And so if this is all about grounded in our responsibility, we're in trouble. I can even say this about my life. There are enough accusations that Satan can throw at me that are true. But are there too many to disqualify me? I've had enough failures that people in my own life know. Parenting failures, husband failures, friend ones, pastor ones, teammate ones, days of laziness, mistake after mistake. Have I had too many apathetic moments in my life? Have I prayed enough to keep me in the faith? Have I had too many evangelistic failures that I did not take? Have I had too many not honest worship moments where I just said the words but didn't really worship? And yeah, I could say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person, I think. But what does God think? Have I done enough? 
according to God, and you start going down a list like that, and I tell you, all you'll ever know is doubt and insecurity because nobody in this room can do enough. But there is one who has done enough, and he has done enough on our behalf. So think about it. There is no way that we could ever earn salvation, nor is there any possible way that we can keep ourselves in the faith. We need someone outside of us initially to do a work inside of us, and then he becomes to live inside of us, and he does the great work. I am not responsible for the security of my salvation. The one who paid the price for my soul keeps me eternally safe. So hear this. He is able... So this doctrine of the eternal security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints is of the utmost importance. For all the other glorious aspects of our faith have as their security this certain, sure truth. Again, if we could lose our salvation, then the work and power of God is weak. And our sin holds more power than the blood of Jesus, if that is the case. And it would be at this point, if we can lose our salvation, that we would have to shift things and redefine a number of core beliefs connected to Christ's work on the cross and the resurrection. Notwithstanding a big consideration of the work of the Holy Spirit who's been placed inside of us as a deposit twice, it says by Paul, guaranteeing our future inheritance. So we would have to question the blood of Jesus and the work of the Spirit to sustain us. For if we can blow away all of God's promises, what then does it say about the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit when He has caused us to be born again? And I just want to say this. Please hear this. God is able to keep us. He is able to keep us. Why do we glory and live a doxology? Why is this so important to us to live in this way? Because, because when we really truly get to a place where we recognize how devastating our sin was and our sin nature was, that God has granted unto us this salvation, and He can not only do the work, He's able to do the work, but then he can keep us and present us eventually blameless. So not only does he keep us now, he will keep us for all of eternity. There's a number of things, and and I'll I'll put these on the internal Facebook page today because we're not going to have time uh, to go through all of this. But Jesus is able to help us not stumble. Why? Well, here's just one of them. Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those when they are being tempted to, to be sustained and to be empowered. So he sustains us now to keep us from stumbling too big, but ultimately he keeps us connected to him And he is able to do this great work. So this permanent work of God, first of all, is that he is able and he is able to keep us from stumbling. Yes, in this life, that the older we get, hopefully the less we want to sin and we want to live in in better obedience and walking with him. But then ultimately as well, he is eventually, this great work, he is able to present us blameless in the presence of the glory. Now, this word blameless, I think we've got it. It's at the very bottom of the screen up there. It means to be legally unaccused, free from even the absence of a charge. Now, here on earth, we will always, until we get to be with Jesus, we will always have somebody in our life who can say, that RC, that Doke, that David... We will always be able to have somebody who can bring some kind of charge that gives some kind of indication that we don't have it together. But I want you to think how astounding this is. There will eventually be a day 
when we will stand in the literal presence of Jesus, not in Isaiah 6 moment, not in Exodus 3 moment, at the burning bush, we will stand in the literal presence of the glory of God, His holiness, His light, and we will be free from charge. Nobody will say anything anymore. Why? Because He, His work, not our work, is able to do such a powerful work that eventually we will be in His presence and we will be so covered by His work, we will be like Him, and there will be no charges anymore. Right now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? And he's good at it. He's the greatest cheerleader in temptation. And then as soon as we buy the lie in temptation, he's the biggest condemner telling us, gosh, why would you have done that? We will eventually be at a place where in God's presence, we will be as Jesus and we will be unaccused. How is that even possible? Well, few ideas that I want to share. This word, to present you blameless for the presence of His glory, it means to set somebody, to set you before someone. So we will be set before God's glory one day. The literal glory of who He is. So right now here on earth, we stand and we are secure by the grace and the blood of Jesus, but one day we will be in the presence of His eternal glory, and actual glory. I mean, it's there, the light, the power, the holiness, all of it. And this is a picture that Jude is writing here for us to understand that He will bring us all the way to the very end where we will be able to stand in His presence without dying. He keeps us to present us and sets us in His awesome glory. Now again, this is not the kind of seeing His glory like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 or Moses did with the burning bush. And I tell you, when when that moment happens, when we stand in the literal presence of the Shekinah glory of God, let me tell you what we're not going to say. I did it! Everybody, everybody look... I did it. I got myself here. Look, I'm not being burned up. We will not do that. We will do this. Now to Him. Now to Him. Now to Him. Now to Him. Who is able to keep us from stumbling and is able to carry us all the way to the very end. And we will stand in His presence and we will not do anything. That's why the elders throw their crowns down in heaven. Why? To Him be the glory. He will finish the work. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Philippians 1.6 I am absolutely certain of this, Paul said, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This word blameless means faultless. Kind of talked about it already. As much as we hope to be blameless right now, it simply is not so. We still sin. Now we are covered by the blood of Jesus. So we have His righteousness and we are secure. But we cannot enter into His presence until a necessary transformation takes place. And here it is. Listen to this. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And only our God has this kind of ability and power to do this, to make sinful people stand before His holiness as faultless and blameless. He is able to keep us from now through this life, all the way to the very end, to be able to stand in His presence, blameless and faultless, without accusation anymore. This is a word that alludes to the Old Testament sacrifice that was being presented to God without blemish. 
The believer will stand before God in eternity without accusation, free from all allegations. Here are some other verses. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what Paul says. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. He is going to do this. How does He do this? Well, He makes us, through the work of Christ, one with Him. Have you heard of a word called atonement? at one with God. And there are a number of images and imagery and things that are true about Him reconciling us into relationship with Him, which moves us to live a doxology of great thanks. So in Christianity, the atonement refers to the needed reconciliation that mankind had, sinful mankind had before holy God that needed this reconciliation. And so the atonement is how God makes us at one with Him and He, he, he brings us into relationship with Him. And this work is connected to Jesus alone, not anybody else. Jesus did this work. So the Scripture offers, offers these images about the atonement and every one of them are glorious. Glorious. One is a great physician. He's the one who heals us. He heals us of sin. Secondly, he's the victorious king who came to establish a kingdom. He defeated sin in its work, and he will come again and he will reign for a thousand years, sitting on a throne, and he will be King Jesus. He is King Jesus. He's the king of little kings. He's the big lord of small lords, and he does this work. There's also the picture of the great work of the atonement and the ransom that's there. Now, now God's not like, I need to get some American dollars to pay Satan off to ransom people. That's, that's not the picture that's there. But he came, he gave his life, Mark 10, 45 says, as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, you were bought at a price. So we see this work in... He's the great physician. He's the victorious king. He's the ransom. He is also the wrath-absorbing substitute on our behalf. We get his righteousness. He takes our sin and rebellion. He takes on the wrath of God that was ours. And he makes it his. Peter said it like this. In case you're thinking it's just Jude and Paul who have this picture Peter did as well 1 Peter 2 23 and 24 when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed So the picture of the work of the atonement is in the great physician, the victorious king, the one who who did the work of the ransom. He's the wrath-absorbing substitute, and he is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 3.25, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a wrath-bearer by his blood. Some translations um, talk about atonement there. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Listen to me, regardless of the image, one thing is definite and clear. He is the one who makes believers one with him, not us. He does. And because of Christ's work, our faith in that work, the guilty sinner, will get to live forever in God's presence, free of accusation. That is an astounding thought this morning. 
you could throw some accusations at me. Some of you know me, and I'd, I'd agree with some of them. But there's coming a day when you can't do that anymore because I'm going to be with Jesus and you will and the old order of things is going to be done with. It's going to be passed away and we will live free of accusation. You see, the Bible, when atonement is talked about, it means that a price has been paid for our sin and that has the result of bringing sinful people at one with a holy God. We have been reconciled to God. So we understand that Christ has made this work of atonement possible. That's Bible language. Christ made atonement, did the work to bring us, his people, into relationship with him. And the guilty sinner is holy here positionally and can be and we will be in his presence for all of eternity. So as I wind this down today, I want to present another question to you that I think is important for us to ask. Does God ever do evil? According to to the Bible, he doesn't. God doesn't do evil. James 1 talks about that. God's holy. So I want to present to you that one of the most evil things that God could do to us, if God could do evil, was to allow us to slip from his hand. To allow us to be unborn when we were born. To allow us to go from living in the light and having the Holy Spirit live inside of us to now not having that, that the Holy Spirit leaves. And I would present to us this morning that that would be something evil for God to let go of us when he has promised that he would not, that he would keep us to the end. I put forth this morning that when God saves us, he saves us for all time and he has the power to keep us For him to let us get loose and get out of his hand and undo all of the work of the blood of Jesus and the deposit of the Holy Spirit puts all of this in our hands that we then become the authority. And I think the Bible would say that's a lie. We do not have the power to undo our lives back into eternal spiritual death after he has raised us up to new life. We do not have the power to undo what the power of the resurrected Jesus has done in salvation. Jesus himself said it this way. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing at all that he has given me. So if we've been given to Jesus, he's saying this, I don't lose anything that's been given to me. And that includes my people. And he says, not only will I not lose anything that the Lord has given me, but I will raise it up. I will raise that person up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. And Jesus said, I only came to do the will of my Father. He became the only one who could bear the wrath of God on our behalf and become our substitute. Because all he did was the will of the Father. Listen to what he said. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. On the last day. He's not one day going to come to anybody in the room who has been born again, Holy Spirit placed, blood of Jesus on us, and come and say, I've got to apologize to you. I'm sorry. I gave it my best effort to keep you. But you were a tough one. You know, when you were on the earth, that was a busy time for me with all the stuff that was going on and I had other issues to deal with and I've just got to hand you back over to Satan and to yourself. I am amazed today how astounding is it this morning 
that there's not anybody in here who can mess this up. If there's truly been salvation, we cannot undo this. And that's why when we really get it, we live a doxology of praise and thankfulness to the work that he has done in the life of a sinner. He can save us. He will keep us to the end. He will set us in God's holy presence, blameless, without accusation. And Paul says, I'm I'm certain of this, that he who began this work by his blood, he will be faithful to finish. He'll finish it. He'll finish it. So what's the response to that? Do we know what Jude said the response of that is? Joy. Joy. Now, don't think bad of me again. One of my favorite movies, it's about 20 years old now, is a movie called That That Thing You Do. It's about this band from Erie, Pennsylvania. And there's a scene early on in the movie where their song is on the radio for the very first time. And they've, it's set back in the day and they've got, you know, little portable radios and, and headphones. And when it comes on, they just start running down the street and screaming. And when they see each other, they're like, our song's on the radio. They eventually get to one of the guys, the guy that's the drummer, his name's Guy. They get to the TV shop, appliance shop that his dad owns, and all of the band members are in there. They turn all of the, the sound stuff, record players and radios on the place, and they're hugging each other, and they're jumping up and down, screaming on the streets, and people, it's so funny, I watched it again this morning, and people in the movie are just like, what is wrong with these people? The literal Greek word that Jude uses here for joy means to jump up and down and be so excited that God has resurrected sinners and is going to bring them to the place of standing in the literal presence of God and being able to worship Him. The song says, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence to my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. And Jude, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. I can tell you that every Christ follower is going to do this. They're going to shout for joy when we stand in Jesus' presence. God's joy becomes our joy. Read Luke 15 if you don't think God's into lost things being found. So as we finish this up today, Jude just says, we're going to have great joy And so he comes back to the idea and just says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forevermore. Just a couple of thoughts here. To the only God, Jude realized none can rival the Lord's power. He had dealt with the influence and was dealing with the influence of evil people and false teachers in the day, but they could not compare with the power of Christ. Men may inherit or establish a circle of influence and domain and power, and people today on the planet think that they are powerful, but they do not possess the power that can steal us away from God, and neither do you and I. So Jude just exalts the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the only God. There are other gods that are proclaimed, but they're not gods. They're just idols. They're not real. 
And so he reaches back, Jude in his mind, I think here, and just to Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is God. He's the only God. He's our Savior. Jesus is the life, the blood, His blood, His work, His holiness, His worthiness. He is our Savior. We contribute nothing to the saving. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. God accomplishes His salvation of His people through Christ, who is the Lord and Master of Jude and all of Jude's readers. He is to get glory. This word here again, doxa, refers to the bright, shining radiance that emanates from the presence of God. It also is a word that indicates that he alone is the one who is honorable, famous, wealthy, well-known, and to be exalted. He is majesty. It describes a state of greatness that's connected to a king or a ruler. So Jesus, Jude says, is the majesty. Jude says he has dominion. This refers to the bounds of his kingdom, which is limitless and endless in the extent of his might to rule and to reign over all and in all belongs to Jesus. So this doxology states the fact that God is the one who holds true power and true might. His deeds are mighty deeds. His word is a mighty word. He gets dominion and he gets authority. This word authority describes the state of control of one thing over another and he has absolute sovereign control of everything. And then Jude says, this truth is this about our God. This is true before time was. This is true right now. And this will be true, he says, forever. This is a reference to his permanence. His throne will endure through all of eternity. There will never be a time he depends on anyone for anything for existence or provision or for insight. He doesn't need help in any way. The Lord rules and reigns both now and forevermore. He is the eternal God. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and last. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the, the point here Judah is making is that his character is unchanging. He will always be this way. He has always been this way. He is this way right now in this moment. He has always been the only God who has always planned to send Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. He has always been worthy of glory, always been worthy of worship. God has always, will always, is right now in this moment, all of these things. And He will forever be these things. And then He just, at some point in time, you got to quit writing and talking. So you just say, so be it. Amen. Amen. One who states amen after a statement is not announcing that they finished speaking, but rather there's just things have to end and there's a note of expectancy to the statement. Let this be the case. This is a cue for Jews' readers to echo this expectant note and they were to say amen. Amen. Let me close with this. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah writes a verse that probably means something to a lot of people in the room. It does to me when I think about it. I hope you'll hear it differently if it's, a, if it's one of your verses. It ought to be one of your verses. If it's not one of your verses, let it be after today. This is how you live a doxology when you get this, when you get this. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, there's this famous verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
he will exult over you with loud singing. Spurgeon wrote of this verse, I think that's the most wonderful text in the whole Bible. He kind of, he wrote it with a question. He said, God himself singing. It's kind of a question. God himself singing? And the Spurgeon writes, I can imagine when the world was made, the morning stars sang together, shouting for joy. But God didn't sing. He said it was very good. That was all. There was no song. But when all the chosen race shall meet around the throne, the joy of the eternal Father shall swell so high that God himself will burst into infinite song. Because the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And what do you think, people, who are standing in the absolute holy presence of God before the throne, do you think they're going to turn to one another and go, well, I did it. How did you do it? Not a single person is going to say that. They will go, no, to him. To him. To him. The only God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority in the past, right now, for all of eternity. Amen. So be it. So be it. So as our culture crumbles, Jude says, let me remind you, There is one who can bring you from here to the very end. And he will keep you safe. He keeps us safe. We will eventually say, yet not I, but Christ in me. The hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.